1: There, Morris Wishtynski speaking. You're listening to episode 137 of the Love That Album podcast. We're part of the Pantheon Network. Welcome. If this is your first time listening to the show, welcome on board. Hope you enjoy. We critique and discuss albums we don't do the song by song thing we like to talk about themes we like to talk about music history we like to talk about the artist and i always love to have fellow music lovers come on board and join me to talk about a chosen album and today on the show i'm welcoming for the first time in quite a few years i think on this podcast of course i speak with him every month on the see here podcast is my good friend and compadre mr bernard stickwell hello hello Welcome on board. It's been a long time since we've spoken purely about music.
0: I think the last thing we did was, didn't we do the Judy Sill albums? And that's got to be like four or five years ago. Was it the
1: last one that we did? My Lord. Uh, I think
0: so. Yeah. Yeah. Finally, you let me back on Morris. Whatever <laughs> it is I, I yeah. did to upset you last time. You've forgiven me. I probably badmouthed
1: Dylan or something, but I don't know. We'll see. Uh, look, hang on. I can just click your out of the channel. Just be me and Doug. All right. I'll be good. No bad mouthing Dylan. And on the other Side of the world I love doing this Because it's so international Get to meet all sorts Of wonderful people For the first time On Love That Album I'm welcoming to the podcast Mr. Doug Bousson Welcome to the show, Doug Hello Thanks for having me uh, Thank you for being head. You're new to this show But for people who May be uh, members of The Gentleman's Guide To Midnight Cinema community They'd know you Possibly from there Or being a regular contributor To uh, the various music And film discussion Facebook groups out there So give us a little bit of background to your passion and your love of music.
2: You know, I've always collected records since I was a little kid. My parents had one of those big console record players. It's a piece of furniture and speakers at the front. And I actually had that until I was about 25 and couldn't lug it
1: around anymore. Was that with a record stacker?
2: It had like a compartment in the top. You pull open, you put the records in there. It was an automatic, you know, one of those that reaches over and touches and sees what, what you have a 12 inch or seven inch on there. They had a lot of Dylan records. And the Doors and Zeppelin and yes and Neil Young and Steely Dan you know a lot of pop mainstream rock of the seventies um, where I think they cut off collecting records was about nineteen eighty it had an eight track player in it and they had uh, one eight track which was Eric Carmen's Hungry Eyes for some reason so that was not something I listened to a lot but I really loved <laughs> but I really loved you know like the Roger Dean artwork so inside the Yes albums and so I'd pour over those and the Steely Dan lyrics that I didn't really understand but kind of was compelled by as a kid. So, you know, I lugged that thing around. It was a thousand pounds. I lugged that around from apartment to apartment and just accrued more records. Half my apartment, my tiny one room apartment was just records for a long time. And that was in Kentucky. And uh, I actually ended up doing something that I would never do again, which is selling almost all of my records in order to help fund a move because I wanted to get out of Eastern Kentucky and move to Minneapolis, which cost a little more money than living in uh, Richmond did. So that was a move i regret on a daily basis <laughs> not the move but selling the records huh?
1: have you been spending all these years trying to buy them all back
2: uh you know some of them i was i didn't have a lot of discretion as a kid about what i bought so i don't really want to buy those journey records that i had back uh, <laughs> or a foreigner or anything it's a lot you know i miss a lot of those records that i had especially the ones i collected in through the 90s when i started getting into more indie rock and avant-garde rock and stuff like that so all my Roxy music i've recollected and the smiths stuff that was my childhood you know Mm
1: -hmm. i think we got started on having a conversation the love that album group or maybe it was on your own page actually probably on your own page about our love of elvin jones because you've been starting you've been doing over the last few months one of those 10 records in 10 day challenges but you just kept going and now what what do you want 150 160 or something like that and you posted something elvin jones and i thought oh this is the guy for me (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh i love elvin jones his solo stuff it's all over the place but i'll even go with him to you know new agenda and that sort of when he gets a little more far out there i really like everything he's done pretty much his art of pepper stuff specifically
1: yeah which you recommended that i get into and i still haven't done that in the last month or so but yeah i, I, I will follow up on that i think the last thing that i heard of him recording was uh, he did an album with bill Frisell, i think sometime in the 90s which was absolutely magnificent. I haven't heard that one. Really, really well worth getting. I've forgotten the name of the artist who did the front cover, but it's it's really great stuff. If you heard the Bill Frisell album Gone Just Like a Train. It's the same artist. If you know the conceptual sort of artwork that you get in Yellow Submarine, it reminds me very much of that.
0: Is it Jim Woodring?
1: That's the one. Yes, it is. Ah, oh, yes. okay. That makes sense. Very nice. Yeah, he's a comic
0: book guy. I've actually got a little art book by Jim Woodring, which comes with a CD by Bill Frasell. So that all makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I
1: haven't announced what it is that we're actually here to speak about, although presumably if you've downloaded this episode, you already know, but... I guess i better to do it officially. We're here to talk about the John Cale album from 1973, Paris 1919. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a bit of a break. Joanne will give you the contact details and then we'll be back to talk about John Cale in general and then Paris 1919 in specific. You're all listening to Love That Album, episode 137.
3: I got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes at lovethatalbumpodcast.blogspot.com or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rollarchaeology.com all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Love That Album and start a music-related discussion. Hey, we're
1: back. Morris here, Bernie over there, Doug somewhere else differently over there, and we're here to talk about John Cale and his 1973 album Paris 1919. First time on board, Doug, we have to get your origins with John Kale. But I do want to say that this was your pick, Bernie. You put me onto this album, I think back in January Mm -hmm. of this year when we said, Yeah, yeah, you've got to come back on the show. And you suggested this album. And I only had one John Kale album, which we'll come back to shortly. But, Doug, I want to know about your origins, your love of Kale. Because when I posted that I was going to be covering this album, you said, I listen to this album every week. So obviously you're very passionate about this. Tell me about where you first discovered Kale. Was it The Velvet Underground? Was it this album? Where did you come in with Junko?
2: Yeah, it was The Velvet Underground. Songs were in the air like Sweet Jane or something. Standing on the corner. Suitcase in my hand. Jackson's course so Jane is in her vest. And me I'm in a rock and roll band. I don't remember where I first heard Sweet Jane whatsoever, and, you know, Walk on the Wild Side, which was Lou Reed, but I was aware of it, but probably didn't listen to Velvet Underground until I was 15 or 16, which is the exact right time to get into it, especially if you're growing up in the 90s because you're kind of ready for it, everything after it. It has all the pieces in there, and then you hear the the, the origin, you hear the original thing, the ur er text, it just blows you away. It's so potent, it breaks your mind open when you hear something like that for the first time. You know, I think originally, I was drawn to it through Lou Reed, and then sort of discovered Kale as I listened to it more, songs that were my favorite songs initially, like Heroin or Sweet Jane or White Light, White Heat, you know, those songs that are sort of the, the catchy sort of thing. And then you get in deeper with Venus and Fur.
3: Shiny, shiny.
2: and you who so is was doing this drone that is just covering this song in this filth and so you read John Cale and that's what started me is who's this guy, where does he come from and how does he so perfectly wield this noise and so that was sort of my origins. I didn't hear Paris 1919 until I was probably 20 but the Velvet Underground were so important to me I mean I still listen to Velvet Underground regularly maybe the greatest rock band of all time
1: We can probably expand on this a little bit later but when you first heard Paris 1919, was there something in your head that said, I can't believe that this is the same guy?
2: I don't think so. It, it initially wasn't really a revelation to me. I listened to it and I thought, this is a pretty good pop record. And then songs kept coming back into my head repeatedly. And so then I just found myself going on one of those jags where you just listen to the same record for three weeks. It sort of became an earwig and then became a constant rotation. And it's kind of been one of those things that I put on so regularly. My wife
1: asked me if I can not listen to John Cale for a little <laughs> And so for your anniversary, you don't play it. Your anniversary, you you take that week off.
2: That's that's the one time of the year that she gets (laughs) reprieved. And she loves John Cale, but it's kind of an obsession
1: of mine, this record especially. She'll say, darling, please play Metal Machine Music by Lou Reed instead. So, Bernie, start of the year, when I said, you really need to come back on Love That Album, give me a suggestion. And you said, right, you heard Paris 1919, and I said, no, I have not. Within about 30 seconds of giving it a listen, I said, right, that's our album. That is it. So I want to know what's your origin with this album and with Kale in general?
0: I was kind of amazed that you hadn't heard it, actually, Morris. Well, I suppose with the Velvets, I was kind of a bit of a latecomer to them. I I kind of did this thing when I was about 16, 17, where through a friend of mine, I really got into music from the the sort of mid to late 60s and the whole kind of psychedelic era, I suppose. And I I kind of wouldn't really listen to anything post-1970 Twenty-one for a few years, but weirdly, I always just glossed over the Velvets, and I got really into all the kind of West Coast stuff like Quicksilver and Jefferson Airplane and the Dead, not to a huge extent, but you know a little bit, and you know more obscure stuff from that period, and a lot of the garage rock kind of stuff from that period. And it was really only in my sort of early twenties, I suppose, I went through my uh, my sixties phase. And from the sound of it, much like Doug, I was very much into sort of indie rock and post-punk kind of stuff, particularly all the stuff that was coming out from the States at the time, it's talking like early 90s here. So it was kind of like before, no, well, around about the time Nirvana hit, I suppose. And so obviously there was a Velvet's influence, as you say, Doug, to a lot of that stuff. And a friend of mine who I've known him since I was probably about like 13, 14, he's, he's about 10 years older than me, and he's worked in the book trade his whole life. He worked in uh, a bookshop, which I to frequent and buy science fiction novels when i was a teenager but we eventually got talking about music he was the one who kept pushing the velvets on me and i eventually kind of relented and then a few years later he said i've just bought a japanese cd of this so i don't need this cd anymore and he gave me paris 1919 the first carol solo album that i'd heard and to be honest it's pretty much the only one i'm still you know i'm familiar with i suppose i was what mid to late 20s then and it's just been a fixture ever since it's weird because i don't really know Kel's other stuff I don't really know where it fits in with his oeuvre as it were I don't know as an LP it's always just really stood alone to me and been its own thing and obviously we'll get to this later but it's always struck me as a very English or I should say Welsh sounding album and funnily enough my friend who um, passed it on to me he's Welsh so uh, he's a big Kel (laughs) fan obviously but you know obviously it's not when when we start talking about the people who were involved with it who played on it it's Genesis it's kind of anything but but really, I mean, obviously there's references and so on, but we'll get to that anyway. But yeah, I, I suppose mid-20s is when I heard it first. And then when we were talking earlier in the year, Morris, it struck me that it would be a perfect album for you in a way. Knowing you and your tastes, I thought you would be all over this. So that's kind of why I was surprised you weren't. So here we are.
1: There's two points I sort of wanted to make in regards to that, knowing how broad your tastes are. But when I think mm-hmm. like every episode that you've been on this show, We've spoken about Judy. We've spoken about Judy Sill. We've spoken about Bill Fay. We've spoken about Mark Eitzel. And now we're speaking about John Cale. We've not had the chance yet to do that Stiff Little Fingers show that you've been asking for till now, Bernie.
0: Yeah, we'll do that right after we do the U2 show, all right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) So knowing that you have tastes in other areas as... Do I, but we've been really focusing on the singer-songwriters and a certain type of singer-songwriter on the show and, and been absolutely really wonderful doing these albums with you. I was obviously not unfamiliar with Kale, and like you guys, I was a fan of the first two Velvets albums. I don't know, maybe, Doug, if you'd seen on American TV or maybe even Bernie, if you'd seen this on YouTube, there was a TV show hosted, I think, I don't know, maybe it was in the... 80s with jazz saxophone player Dave Sanborn called Night Music and he used to have amazing musical guests come on every week I think while I was still sort of like finding everything I could on Richard Thompson there was this clip that had been pointed my way of Richard Thompson John Cale, Sean Colvin and Joel Sonya on Night Music with Dave Sanborn providing saxophone doing Kale's rearrangement of Heartbreak Hotel.
3: So if your baby you and you've got a tale to tell, just take a walk down loneliness. Street straight to Heartbreak Hotel. You could feel so lonely, and I could feel so lonely. We could feel so lonely. We could die.
1: I was absolutely blown away. I thought, I mean. I love the Elvis original, but I thought, this is how it should sound. The tone is, it's miserable and dark, as the lyrics suggest. Bernie, you've said that you've sort of not really sort of gone beyond Paris 1919, but on one of his Island albums, I've come, if it's... Slow uh, Dazzle. It is on Slow Dazzle, I remember if it was Fear or Slow Dazzle. It appears on there, but the version on... Night music is even darker than I think it is on the Slow Dazzle album. I've just re that clip in the last couple of days and John Cale would be declared a genius, in my mind, for that rearrangement alone. But years ago, I remember hearing, I think maybe 93, 94, I heard them talk on the radio on one of our public stations here about his album Fragments of a Rainy Season, which was basically him doing Unplugged before Unplugged became a thing it's just him behind a piano with about two or three songs on guitar I'll talk a little bit more about that album as we go along but that was where I first sort of knew of him and I bought that album and really really liked it but hadn't played it in years as a result of us talking about this on the show uh, I decided right okay I better go and listen to some other stuff so I went and ordered a copy it was basically two cd anthologizing all the island years stuff so it was Sophia, Slow Dazzle, and Helen of Troy. What an absolute revelation that was. And I went back and listened to the earlier albums uh, the academy in peril which was you know sort of mixing pop and classical styles which given that cale's background as an experimental classical viola player sort of made some sort of sense and i believe he had he was doing classical music in ensembles before he even did the velvets
0: that's why he went to the states wasn't it to, to study and that's yeah right, yeah right right play with lamont young <laughs>
2: took mm-hmm. viola lessons from the lead viola player in the Boston Symphony Orchestra as well. He had composed stuff when he was 10 years old that the BBC recorded. He was classically trained and then got interested in what was going on with the whole John Cage movement and that sort of composing that was happening in the, in mm-hmm. the early
1: 60s. It was a whole deconstructionist sort of thing. Yeah. I also got to listen to an album that he made with Terry Riley called Church of Anthrax, mm-hmm. which was sort of this avant-garde uh, jazz rock sort of thing. I need to listen to that more. I just I've just been listening to that a couple of times just to sort of get a feel. And by the time he gets to Paris 1919, there's no album that you can sort of say, right, well, this is a John Cale sounding album because Mm -hmm. every step along the way he was doing something different. And you sort of wonder, was it that youthful, adventurous spirit? I want to try different things. Or was he trying to find, right, this is where I want to keep going. This is the direction I want to keep going in. The island albums are quite different from what Paris 1919 is. In fact, I'd say... Out of what I've heard, there's nothing else that's quite like Paris 1919.
0: I was listening to uh, the Academy in Peril this morning, and there are a few hints on there of the sort of direction that he would go for Paris 1919, but not much. Like you say, a lot of it is actually just fairly straightforward, sort of avant-garde classical stuff. Mm. But there's one or two tracks or moments within tracks that I kind of thought, okay, yeah, you can see maybe some seeds of Paris 1919
1: here or something. I don't know. Sure, and he continued on with some of those sweet melody type arrangements on those island albums and i dare say probably into the 80s i heard a little bit of an album called music for a new society which does sort of have that 80s production sheen not to the extent that a lot of people sort of went down that path but it does sound like an 80s album i really need to listen to that a whole lot more one of my friends here pat monahan he says that's his favorite kale album it goes
3: very very dark Her mother was greedy with dirt. Greedy.
0: isn't it Kale's favourite album of his own albums or is is one that he holds in high regard
1: I believe he was recording that at a time where he was having something of a nervous breakdown so maybe recording that album saved him to some extent I don't know I need to read a Kale biography please come over to 81st Street
3: I'm in the apartment above the bar
1: You know you can't miss it maybe the elephant in the room Kale can and should be spoken of in his own right but it's inevitable that in his early days his music was tied to Lou Reed they infamously had issues with each other which led to Kale leaving the Velvet Underground but they did record later on that songs for Drella which is another album that I had and had heard Mm -hmm. enjoyed nowadays so like having listened to more Kale I can sort of surmise which songs are more Kale's influence and uh, which songs are more uh, Lou Reed's influence. They both came from very different backgrounds you know Kale as you've said already being classically trained Reed coming purely from a doo-wop and rock and roll background. It's amazing to me having read that Kale was the one who wanted to do all the weird stuff and wanted to do all the experimentation and Reed wanted to to do the more straight ahead pop I mean you've been Bernie we've gone and spoken about metal machine music this does not sound like the album that comes from the man who wanted to you just straight ahead do what?
0: It was his big fuck you to the record company, though, wasn't it, I believe? I mean, no, despite what he may have said since, I think that was probably the case. So if you look at the majority of his work, he doesn't go anywhere near as adventurous or avant-garde or sort of experimental or strange as Kel does or did,
1: you know? But I'd say that there were still some Reed albums which don't sound like anything that anyone else was doing at the time. I mean, you know, Berlin, although maybe I guess, you know, okay, but something like Berlin does sound very David Bowie-esque. So maybe that's where his head was going. But I don't think there were many people doing things quite the way David Bowie was doing it in the early mm-hmm. 70s. And, you know, albums like Transformer and Berlin and later on Magic and Loss. The Bells, which I think is amazing. Yes, yes, that's great. Which
2: I, I'm a huge fan of. Mm. Uh, I think that's one of those that really stands out in Lou Reed's discography as, you know, like, I think you were talking about metal machine music and i think like bernie said that's a big fuck you to the record company but i think he ended up listening to that record and said you know well i found stuff in there things he could pluck out and things he could use from tones and the bells kind of is a is another record that could be seen as a fuck you Because it's Lou Reed doing disco and Lou Reed doing this sort of half assed soul music, but it's just wonderful and it's got Niels Lofgren on it and it's just a great record. It's a controversial record within his, uh, (laughs) not as controversial as like The Raven, but it's controversial amongst fans.
0: I'm a huge fan of Metal Machine music, you know, even though, uh, despite what I said, it's probably the Lou Reed album I go back to most, actually.
2: I think Lou Reed also said that if you uh, listen to it a lot, you're probably insane. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's a bit of, you know, in John Cale and him having bad blood, I think it's a little bit of if somebody gets too close to being the genius in the group or somebody gets too close to Mm -hmm. being... uh, being as big as Lou Reed then they have to go
1: you know absolutely yeah so maybe that's the mark of highest respect for him
2: yeah is that you're too good
1: you have to go yeah.
2: and it's interesting the Velvet Underground I mean while we're talking about him that people have tried to recreate that sound and you have a guy Lou Reed who's who's writing songs for Pickwick pop songs you have a guy who's classically trained and has worked with Lamont Young and it's you know really stretching out his foundation of like ability and talent and then you have Motel Tucker, who has the strangest concept of time, you know, in the mm-hmm. world, who kind of prefigured punk. And they got Sterling Morrison, who is a rock. You know, he's the most underrated member. He holds everything together. You yeah. Know? And you those four elements coming together, it just has not never happened again. And it's a hard alchemy to recreate. And that's why nothing quite gets there. There's some of their stuff after Kale leaves is OK. Doug Yule is all right, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I won't slag off Doug
1: Yule, I guess. The thing I always found interesting about the Velvet Underground is you listen to well, at least with those first couple of albums, is there's a combination of the best of the two of them, of Reed and Kale, and there's Mm -hmm. beauty and there's dissonance. If the albums had only been, like say the album with Nico, had only been one style or the other, it would still have been great. But I guess maybe it's like a a metaphor for life, you know, it can be beautiful and it, it can be ugly and the album... Provides both. We'll probably come to this more when we're talking about Paris 1919 in further detail. But it seems to be the one album, well, at least going up to the island years, because that's pretty much where I stopped. As I said, I'll listen to a bit of Music for a New Society. But just going on those island years, it seems like the modus operandi that was in the Velvet Underground with beauty and dissonance he seems to sort of bring back on those island years particularly Helen of Troy which I believe Mm. was not even an album that he wanted put out because he said it was all demos and went out without his permission but we'll come to that a little bit more later on. Now, I just sort of wanted to bring the discussion a little bit to Kale as producer, because it's a funny thing. Like for years before I became a fan of Todd Rundgren, I knew of Rundgren more as a producer rather than as a performer. And actually, just as a bit of an aside, when you look at the front cover of the Fear album, Kale actually looks to me a little bit like Todd Rundgren. On- I can see
0: that. Yeah, yeah.
1: As it is, even if you hadn't had a Kale album in your life, surely you have something that he's produced in your life. Was it you, Bernie, that was talking earlier on about the droning sound that comes across on the Velvets albums?
0: I think that was Doug that mentioned that. Oh, excuse me. Sorry, 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 Doug, when
1: you were talking about the, the droning on the Velvet albums, the man who recorded later on Paris 1919, but he produced the Stooges albums, and you listen to a song like We Will Fall... so sort this of seems to be almost more like an extension of himself rather than something that was in the Stooges wheelhouse.
3: Yeah,
2: I think that's why they rejected that production, right? Is that he produced it and then they gave it to the record company and they said, "We're not putting this out like this." Iggy Pop and I can't remember the other guy, but Iggy Pop and one of the record guys reproduced the whole thing. So I think Kale's version didn't come out until like 10 years ago, hmm. and it sounds totally different. It's like 2010 they put out somewhere around there, they put out his version, and I want to be your dog's really different. Different. I think he still got a production credit okay they changed it because uh, yeah I remember it coming out like a few years back and the I want to be your dog version I is the one that I go back to the most I think it kind of sounds like how Lou Reed was producing the later velvet records where it was mm-hmm. kind of lower in the mix they call it closet mix
0: oh yeah
2: yeah I think that happened a couple times to kale I think he also wanted to produce the talking heads and was in talks with them and then Eno got it they chose Eno over him
0: I wonder if thing. he he's one of those because the only albums i I definitely know well that he produced i mean well as in i've listened to them and i know them quite well it's obviously the first stooges lp and uh two nico lps that he did Mm -hmm. desert shore and is it marble orchard Uh, marble Marble index Index, sorry i think there's a lot of him in those albums not just Mm -hmm. obviously the two nico albums i think he plays a lot of the instruments on there but he brings a lot of his sound, which is obviously what he did with the, the first Stooges LP as well. So, I wonder if he's one of those or he was one of those producers where he was bringing too much of himself to the table, which is why other people were a bit maybe less than kind about his work in that they felt the need to, to change it. Talking Head Sing maybe lost out on that because they were thinking, oh, uh, you know, too much Kale.
2: Yeah, mostly. I mean, even that Happy Mondays record sounds like Kale, you know? Sure, well, yeah, uh, there you go. Yeah. That, yeah.
3: If you've got to, be told by soul.
1: He also produced the first album for Squeeze which it took me a long while to actually warm up to that album I'm sort of more used to the Later, poppier. So, I mean, it's still a poppy sounding effort, but there was a fair bit of electronics on that one as well as the straight out band stuff. But after a while, that album really drew me in. Take
3: me, I'm
1: One of the big ones would be Horses by Paddy Smith. Yeah. I'd love to have been a fly on the wall while I was in the producer's chair for that one because it sounds like he's drawn to uh, very strong people and I imagine that there would have been some interesting discussions going on between him and Paddy about the sound of the album.
2: Yeah, I think she said she chose him because he was one of the few people in the rock world at that time who treated her as an equal and not as a woman who was in rock. She had very strong opinions and would come into a room and know what she wanted and people found that threatening from a woman I think that they weren't quite used to it Strong I still personality.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree yeah but it's a very I don't know I, I won't say a warm sounding album but there's something that's all encompassing about the production work on that album that really doesn't sound like the production on his own album it sounds very much it almost sounds like a live record mm-hmm.
2: yeah I, yeah and I think that's what she wanted too is she wanted it to be sound exactly like a live record and I think they really achieved that energy that you get
0: John against us, six off his leather jacket, take to his chest. There's the air that he does, and I said,
3: which place for birds? Which place for birds? They cry, they squeeze, they not to
1: pay. Before we sort of get round to talking about. Paris 1919 in some sort of detail. I mean, Bernie, you said that this is the one album that you're really in-depth familiar with. Yeah. But Doug, what's another Kale album that would be a go-to album for you, and how does it contrast to Paris 1919? What's something else that you really, really love?
2: Well, Fear and Slow Dazzle, I listen to almost as much as Paris 1919. I mean, those three records in a row, I don't know if those three are considered kind of a trilogy, or if they put Helen of Troy, the Island records, more as the trilogy and thematically but fear is all over the place in such a great way almost all of Harris 1919 flows as a record mm-hmm. <laughs> it feels like a record it feels like he had one chunk of thematic lyrical it's really amazing how everything goes together but fear is kind of feels a little more like singles you know every song is its own thing gun is the fiercest John Cale song <laughs> guitar at the end and the subject matter of kind of a first-person criminal sort of subject matter. Great. Barracuda is such an amazing pie. And to have Gun and Barracuda on the same record is just wild. Couldn't be any different. Uh, you Know More Than I Know. And then the title track, Fear is a Man's Best Friend, is just mm, mm. such an amazing way to start off the record. Slow Dazzle, I really love. That's got that Heartbreak Hotel cover, which sounds like pre-figures like The Birthday Party or something like that.
1: It, it, I can't remember which song it is, but there's one on Helen of Troy that sounds like Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds I'm trying to remember which one it is Uh, Sudden Death maybe yes I think actually it is Yeah, I can definitely see that. Have Cave and Kale worked together? I don't think so. Not that I'm aware of. Man, I I can just imagine that Cave would be a huge fan.
2: Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of parallels and you get that weird discordant, really menacing feel of Heartbreak Hotel, which is like miserable, but also angry at being miserable, (laughs) you know, sort of furiously unhappy. That's a great track. And I think Mr. Wilson, the first track on that is as good as anything Cale ever did. The chorus to that song, I won't even try to sing it, but uh, the chorus of that song blows me away every time I hear it.
1: Apparently, John Cale locked himself up in his apartment and just was playing nothing but Beach Boys records for weeks <laughs> when he came up with that song. But Brian apparently didn't like it or was questioning thing Are you you making fun of me? You making fun of me? <laughs> yeah well
2: i mean brian wilson also locked in his room right i
1: mean <laughs> two people
2: totally alienated from the rest of the world having a conversation that doesn't quite go right is not
1: surprising <laughs> to me. what like the rest of the world is currently doing right exactly
2: Everyone's clattering away on their keyboards angrily in a a room. But that song's great. Taking it all away, I think, is an amazing track. I've done a huge 180 on Dirty Ass Rock and Roll, which has to be, per my taste, the worst song title ever. I mean, it (laughs) sounds like an Aerosmith song or something. Yeah, yeah. I kind of like it now. John Cale's, like I said, menacing sort of take on uh, roadhouse music or something, honky-tonk, blues. And there's something left of the dial about everything he does, even when he approaches something as sort of standard as Boogie Woogie, you know? Maybe he's channeling
1: Lou Reed on that one.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it might, be. it might be. Lou Reed's love of Boogie Woogie and Broadway tunes.
1: Well, it's funny you mentioned Broadway tunes because that sort of segues into the album. I sort of wanted to talk about a couple of minutes, which was the live album I mentioned earlier on, Fragments of a Rainy Season. I think if you're going to do a live album, you should be making it sound different to anything that you did in the studio. If you try to reproduce it, why would the fans be wasting their money just going out and buying a reproduction with just a little bit of audience cheering? There's no point. And Fragments of a Rainy Season, as I said, it's his pre-MTV unplugged type album. Just him and a piano, him and a guitar and a couple of songs and it's interesting because more than anything that I'd hear on the studio recordings i get a real feel on this album for his approach as a piano player he's not like a rock piano player in the sense like what Joe Jackson would end up doing or Ben Folds would end up doing, they're sort of like using some level of piano virtuosity where he's really gone and stripped it back it's him just doing a lot of 8th note or 8th chord type and that's a across quite a bunch of the songs so like uh, a song like cordoba or even the stripped back version of the song paris 1919
3: she makes me so unsure of myself standing there never ever talking sense. just a visitor you see so much wanting to be seen coming to the door making carry us away
1: on this album is rhythmically very very similar and it's just him saying right i'm gonna let my voice and the melody of my voice take you away this is just me being percussive i'm playing the piano because i'm not going to sing by myself that he's not trying to be the grand pianist he's selling the song by itself there wouldn't have been anything wrong if he would have done it but he said no this is what is required for this song that minimalist approach. That's something that just really appeals to me about that album. And it, effectively it is my introduction to Kale because I've had that album for many, many years. I'd say probably thinking back, it would have been great if I had been a Kale fan before hearing that album. So I could so all oh, right, this is a different approach to these songs rather than sort of hearing these songs and then coming back to the Island Years albums or Paris 1919 proper. saying, like, oh, this is how he originally did it. So the other point I wanted to quickly make about that album sort of sounds to me very Broadway showish. Uh, you listen to this and you can just sort of imagine maybe even a Broadway show rehearsal. Someone in, you know, those in those films like All That Jazz where you see... The guy sitting at the piano and you've got the yeah. dancers there and they're all in that strip background. That's what it sounds like to me, maybe even very Gilbert and Sullivan-ish when you listen to Paris 1919 and he sings, You're a ghost, la, 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 la. And that mm-hmm. very Gilbert and Sullivan or Broadway show. I don't know whether that's something that he consciously thought about, but I love the fact that he sort of said, right, well, these old songs that people want to hear, well, I'm going to do something different with it. And once again, that's my approach for my love of what makes a good live album. Yeah, yeah, for sure.
2: Not like that, what's that Kinks live album? I can't remember the name of it at the moment, but where it's the audience is louder than the song. You can't hear Sunny Afternoon, and they just recorded audience over it. It wasn't real audience. They looped it. So you can hear the same like applause over and over again, over top of like Sunny Afternoon. You can't
1: <laughs> fucking hear it. <laughs> Because I know they recorded a live album, I think, in the late 70s, but there's also one that they did in the 60s. It's the one album it's in the 60s, the 60s that I do have. I have a weird Spanish version of the tape, and I don't remember the name of the title. I don't remember the title. <laughs> oh, live that. at Kelvin Hall, I think.
2: That's it. That's it. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. I don't know, sort of wasn't interested. I'm not necessarily sure that before you know the advent of decent PAs that how many 60s live albums would cut the mustard, and I know someone's going to listen to this and shake their heads and say you dickhead what about uh 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 but anyway it's it's on the record now can't take it back alright look what we're going to do now is we're going to go take a quick break and then we're going to come back and talk about Paris 1919 in some detail because presumably if you've downloaded this that's what you want to hear is us talk about that album in particular so um, we'll be back in a couple of minutes you're listening to Love That Album with me in this corner Bernie in that corner and Doug in the other corner
3: But the kids The kids with the clumsy Hi, I'm John Waters. Hi, this is Dolph Lundgren. Hi, I'm Lance Henriksen. Hi, this is Keith Gordon. Robert Tune. Miguel Ferrer. Nancy Allen. Robert Davi. Richard Elfman.
0: Ileana Douglas.
3: Patrick Warburg. Wings Wingshauser. Cliff DeYoung. Steve Railsback. Mr. T. William Cass. If you haven't been listening to the Projection Booth podcast, you're missing out. Each week, the Projection Booth brings you in-depth discussions of some of the most interesting movies ever made. I'm Mike White. No, the other one. I'm the guy who wrote the film fanzine Cashiers to Cinemark since 1994. Four. Since early 2011 i've been co-hosting the projection booth podcast try us won't you i never try anything i just do it visit the projection booth at projection-booth.com
1: and hey, we're back from break morris over here bernie and Doug over there but indifferent over this and we're talking about john cale's paris 1919 and while we we're on the break we we're talking about a whole bunch of other albums that were not Paris 1919 just sort of coming across some suggestions for a future episode and <laughs> oh, i i think the guys have got it in for me so Paris 1919 1973 produced by Chris Thomas and i mean you could do a whole show just talking about his background my lord that guy really has been around for the history of rock music got his start when i think george martin said i'm taking a holiday for a few days here you produce the beatles at their most difficult on uh, (laughs) the on the white album but he also played keyboards on a bunch of songs on the white albums he was the man getting in between roger waters and david gilmore when they were hating on each other over dark side of the moon and that would have been fun um, <laughs> Which
2: came out the same day as Paris 1919.
1: Oh, wow, I did not know that. Dark Side of the Man. Wow, I'd, yeah. I'd rather be listening to Paris 1919 any day.
2: Yeah, I think it's kind of a travesty that that record is a household name and Paris
1: 1919 remains kind of an underground cult hit. Because when you think about it, Paris 1919, there's nothing in it that wouldn't appeal to anyone who likes a melodic song, Yeah, um, which mm-hmm. is what this album is about. And I brought up a little bit before, I read a quote actually in the Island Records double CD anthology where Patti Smith said that what she appreciated about the Velvet Underground was their combination of beauty and dissonance. And the Island Records years, especially when you get to Helen of Troy, sort of over Fear and Slow Dazzle, is about that sort of level of beauty and dissonance. Maybe not quite the same level that there is on uh, the Velvet Underground's first couple of albums with John Cale. But Paris 1919 is all about, at least musically, about the beauty. The dissonance might be with some of the songs lyrically thinking, what the hell is this actually about? You're never spoon-fed. And yet I still think I have a sense of thematically what is going on lyric-wise. And I know that some people say, well, I'm not really a lyrics guy. But with Kale, he is that sort of guy who, he has something to say. This album is about literature and history. Yeah. but rather than sort of dropping the listener right into history it's more impressionistic and there are songs maybe like on those island years records where you do get a greater sense of what he is trying to say
0: I'm one of those guys that you just described who's uh, I'm lyric second and music first mm-hmm. so purely from a musical point of view I think you're absolutely right that it definitely feels all of one piece it's you know the whole album is about melody and beauty the whole album is very i think melancholic i think there's really only one upbeat song which is almost a bit of a palate cleanser in a way before you get back to the uh, the slightly more melancholic wistful kind of stuff and i mean looking at the lyrics like you say they're very obtuse it's there's definitely nothing specific there it's more about imagery and feeling i guess but again through the lyrics there's definitely a feeling of melancholy wistfulness a feeling of change i mean if 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 you know what the album is named for, and obviously that's a theme through some of the uh, songs we'll get to in a moment, I'm sure. But this idea of change, of letting the past go and moving forward and of change not necessarily being easy or maybe not even necessarily being right, but it's part of the journey. As I mentioned earlier, I've always felt this album sort of stands alone outside of everything else. And you can apply that to the lyrics, I guess, the themes and the images and so on, which crop up throughout it as well. You know, it's a really difficult LP to compare to anything else to give people an idea if they haven't heard it, you know.
2: So, I mean, you said it really well. Wistfulness is like the number one thing that comes to mind. Sure. there's a feeling that this record gives me that no other record gives me period mm-hmm. you know i think we listen to records and you think oh, i wish i had been there i would 1973 that would have been you know but this record it's outside of time and place it feels yeah, absolutely it feels like you know you're constantly stuck in a nostalgia for the past and sort of the heartbreaking fact that it's gone that everything's gone like gone half past france
3: things are much different here than norway Not so cold Wonder when we'll be in Dundee Old Halvec knows his way around He's no fool Wish I'd get to see my son again
2: when he says, I wish I could get to see my son again. Lines like that are direct. There's a lot more cryptic lines that still mm-hmm. sort of t- I mean, when he says Sebastopol, Adrianapolis on Child's Christmas in Wales, that's one of my favorite lyrics ever. And it's nonsense. It's like two different cities just said back to back that sound great. You know, I wish I could see my son again, like stuff like that that's so direct. It's heartbreaking, but it's not a sad album either. It's an emotional album that kind of yeah. goes all over the place and makes you sort of feel, like you said, hope and loss.
1: I think that there's an arc to this album, and you've both sort of hit the nail on the head as I see it, with the album being about change and not necessarily for the better. But whereas I think the opening song in the album, Child's Christmas in Wales, is about sort of wistfulness for simpler times the arc of the we get to the end of the album which is antarctica starts here and so i believe is supposed to be his tribute to sunset boulevard that's not wistfulness for simpler times that's just depression for recalling much better times you're right this is not an album that is up-tempo Apart from the one song that you alluded to, Burning Macbeth. Mm -hmm. It's not even necessarily an album that you say starts positive and ends negative. But it's, to me, an album that starts hopeful and then ends up being resigned. Half past France is a soldier who's on his way somewhere else. I can't remember if he's going to Berlin. And he's presuming that, well, there are people in power who know a whole lot better than me. I just can't wait for this war to be over to see my son. My fate is in the laps of, of others. And then the Norma Desmond character, if that is who it is, Antarctica starts here. Her schoolhouse mind has windows now where handsome creatures come to watch the anaesthetic wearing off. Antarctica starts here. You know, once she was watched to be admired and now she's a freak show. Yeah. That's some of the more direct lyrics, but as you say, there's, Bernie, there's a lot of obtuse stuff. That's why I say it's a beautiful arc, I think, on this record.
0: The genius of what Cale's done here is that you can read songs... You can read them in different ways. For example, uh, you know, you're talking about uh, Antarctica Starts Here, and it is supposedly a tribute to Sunset Boulevard, and it's about the old fading actress. But if you look at the theme of the... or one of the themes of the uh, LP is Europe and the changes in Europe... You know, maybe you could read that as old Europe's had its time, you know, things are changing, things aren't what they are, it's all pretty obvious stuff when you put it like that, but it's there, you know, it's open to more than one reading.
1: Which, I guess, all great songs, all great literature, yeah, yeah. all great films, I mean, that's what we're always discussing on C Here, about different interpretations, although last month's Outlaw Blues, as he said, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. <laughs> I
3: mean, sometimes it's often better to uh, do unto others before they do unto you it's it's uh, it's a it's a paranoia that that um, I think it's, it's kind of popular One
1: theme which I see on this album, not so much like as Across the Arc, but it's with an individual song in this case, is to do with fear and paranoia. And I think it's done a whole lot more directly on the Fear and Slow Dazzle albums than it is here on Paris 1919. We were talking before about the song Fear is a Man's Best Friend. The opening lines of the song set to the tone, uh, standing waiting for a man to show wide eye, one eye fixed on the door the waiting's killing me it's wearing me down we're already dead just not you yet don't in the ground the song is still not handing it to you on a plate but those lines Uh, pretty direct and the song ends explosively uh, with him screaming and the version on the live album I was talking about before he just goes nuts on the piano it gets very very discordant the song starts out calmly and then ends up going all over the place fear and paranoia which I believe also is a theme throughout some of his later albums as well have you heard the peel session of fear before no I have not
2: from like 75 it's great his voice at the end of fear just blood curdling screams again (laughs) Voice Throughout, I think, is in better form than it is on
1: the record. I think it's kind of a better version than the record version, which I I love. The second song of Fear, the Fear trilogy, as I'm gonna call, from Slow Dazzle, and you've been itching to talk about this one, Doug. <laughs> Guts. <laughs> the in the
3: short sleeve, fuck my wife. Did it quick and split. Back home,
2: Guts. Parrot spit. Parrot shit. The bugger in the short sleeves fucked my wife. Like you we were talking about off air. It he kind of swallows that line. It's such a vitriolic line, but he kind of swallows it. As I was saying, he did that in front of his parents and apparently really delivered it in the in the uh, the most enunciation you can give the Welsh accent. And just threw it to the fucking wall. He slammed on the piano and he jumped around and he screamed. And his parents were like, that was fine. That was good. You know, they weren't shocked.
0: <laughs> like, yeah. Very nice, like, oh. John. Well done, John. Well done. <laughs> we remember
1: your tantrums as a kid, John.
2: <laughs> he used to write his mom letters on acid and tell her he was on acid. She'd say, what? Well, huh? I don't know. I don't really know what acid is. That's fine. I you don't know <laughs> what LSD is. Whatever. But uh, I think he really wanted to get a rise out of his parents. I think that his mom, if you know his upbringing, I'm going a little off topic, I guess, here. That's okay. But A Child's Christmas in Wales, you know, I mean, yeah, Dylan Thomas reference and also a reference to his childhood in Wales, which was by all accounts kind of lonely. And he just liked to stay in his room and read sheet music that he would check out from the library and his mom trying to guide him to become something. Education, education, education. So apparently, he didn't really have many friends and he didn't do much. He just checked out sheet lo- music from the library and worked on his compositions and read. And it shows, and you get something like this that.
0: It paid off. An, yeah.
2: He has a nostalgia for it, but there's anger in there and there's a sense of. Hope of being past the past, being beyond it and moving forward. But the unknown is forward. And so the past is safer to -hmm. to hold in the mind rather than the unknown. And I think this album kind of is not only his fear for the future and his paranoia, like we were talking about, which a little lesser on this one his worry about the future and so his dredging up the past is a worldly concern it's a global concern and it's a european concern what's happening Mm -hmm. what's what kicked off our century and what will end it you know and what will what will be in the future and i think that's all in there even though it's cryptic and it's not always 100 percent direct about what era we're in he's talking about enoch powell who was yeah yeah who was in the 60s and 70s, right? Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, he's going back and referencing Graham Greene and the 1919 uh, Paris Accords. And mm-hmm. so you get a really interesting and and very literary sort of... Telling, yeah, emotional telling
1: yeah. of the 20th century. It seems like, though, with those two songs, even though he's not spoon feeding it, it's those two songs are a little bit more direct in approach on Paris 1919. He sort of says, Right, I expect you to know this much, and right. then even then, you may still not get it. Fear is a man's best friend. And guts, you can come in completely cold and sort of think, oh, hello. You don't need to know about the Kevin Ayers story to appreciate oh, yeah. his pissed off.
2: I went off the rails and never even said anything about Kevin Ayers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, that was, sorry, we were talking about it off air. Feel free to, to relate it now.
2: So Kevin Ayers uh, is the guy who fucked Kel's wife. The night before they played a show that was Eno, Robert Wyatt, Nico, Ayers and Kale. And the cover says it all with Kale kind of, you know, <laughs> angrily looking at Ayers while Ayers can't look him in the eye. Then they played a show together and then he wrote a song about it. Yeah. <laughs> and so the bugger in the short sleeves is uh, Kevin Ayers. May 31st, 1974. Hey, Kevin, have you heard
1: this song that John's written about you? Don't want to know? <laughs> <laughs> to this day, Don't never hate. heard it. <laughs> yeah. Whereas those songs... Uh, more from his perspective, the song, at least as I'm interpreting on Paris 1919, that's about paranoia, is done as an outsider looking in, and that's the outlier of the album Macbeth. If he'd named it something else, you might never have made the connection. You know it's true. You never saw things quite that way. She knew it all and made you see things her way. Uh, Macbeth is being reminded that Lady Macbeth knew he should kill King Duncan. And he's paranoid for the rest of the play. As we all know, that story ends absolutely swimmingly. (laughs) Goes well for everyone. Paranoia and anger is definitely something that's in Kale's wheelhouse in a singer-songwriter era of that early time where there's either songs about let's all make the world a better place, let's uh, stop these bad things that world bodies are doing, and we just need a few good old-fashioned songs of paranoia as referred to literature and history. And I, I mean, I'm trying to think how many other songwriters of the era were doing what he was doing in that regard with sort of using literature and film as a solid base or European history, as you say, as a theme across a a whole album. Can we uh, go over the cast list of this album?
0: Absolutely, please. Well, you were just talking about Macbeth there, I just wanted to bring up the fact that we mentioned before that this is kind of a timeless album and, you know, it could have came out three weeks ago or it could have come out in 1973 as it did but Macbeth is probably the only track on the LP which sort of roots it to a time and place. It's it's a yeah. real upbeat sort of glam stomper which really makes me think of bands like The Sweets or maybe Slade or something along those lines mm-hmm. which of course, particularly in the UK at the time, 73, that's what it was all about. So that one is weirdly the, the only for the time contemporary sounding song on the LP, I would say.
1: It's the only song to me on the album that sounds like the musicians and you were going to sort of talk about yeah, yeah. The, yeah. The, the, the cast list as it were on the album we got a couple of members of Little Feet and this is the only song that remotely sounds to me like a Little Feet song
2: I was actually referring to the cast list of people mentioned in, oh. in the lyrics. Oh, excuse words. me sure. there we go yeah because re- we're talking about it being literary you get Farmer John Old Halveg, Field Marshal Old Taylor Amanda Martha The Mama William 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 Rogers which is my favourite Mr Enoch Powell Carruthers the civil servant, which kind of mm-hmm. sounds like you'd be on Gilligan's Island or something. <laughs> the Queen, Graham Green, Columbus. Macbeth and Banquo. There's so many characters. I mean, it's 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 insane. I can't think of another album that has that many mentions to you get a little snapshot of a person, what they think or who they are or what they did, you know, like Amanda smiling away at the end of Plain of Endless Fortune.
0: I wonder if it's a way that he in which he was kind of signifying By using various characters like that, he's alluding to certain, perhaps, classes of people or Mm. layers of society. Again, throughout the, the overarching theme of the LP, he's picking certain characters at certain points in history to sort of reflect the changes or how the changes would affect people or i don't know i'm you know i'm I'm spitballing here and this just occurred to me but possibly i don't know
2: yeah it's a stand-in i suppose for just saying i or you yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah. you get a little backstory you get a a snapshot like i said of someone's life and it exactly yeah adds a little more weight to it
1: this is what i'm coming to so with a song like Macbeth, it's more impressionistic you have to come in sort of knowing that it's a song of paranoia because it's called Macbeth. Right, um, right, You get a little bit of an impression. It's more like I'm standing on the outside looking in at this point in time in the story. There's an old musical song written by um, Broadway songwriter Frank Losa, who wrote the song Dog Eat Dog in Denmark. And that is pretty much the story of Hamlet in three minutes. Um, Mm. And you don't need to go in knowing the story of Hamlet. If you do, then Mm -hmm. it's done in a jazz fashion and you can enjoy it. But that's more of a novelty. This is not the story of Macbeth, it's an impression of paranoia. And like a lot of this song to me is fairly obtuse. Just a couple of things where I think, okay, I get what they're going for there. But it's more like i presume you know the story of macbeth this is my impression of paranoia because of these couple of lines which once again he put himself back into the first person for those other songs that i was talking about later on in the island years but here he was going for more as an observer but Mm -hmm. obviously the subject matter of paranoia and anger is something that is fascinating to kale as really any of the whole range of human emotions should be but maybe paranoia is not something that's Explored quite as much in songwriting: anger, joy, lust—they're all there. But fear and paranoia. uh, Look, I'm sure that I know that there are tons, but but those other ones seem to be more the bedrock of what 20th century rock songwriting seems to be about.
2: I think cocaine psychosis will give you a fair amount of (laughs) fear and paranoia.
1: Yeah, yeah. I hear rumour he nearly named it cocaine as a man's best friend. <laughs> which culminates in the uh lopping the head off
2: of a chicken and causing your whole band to quit. So he did all this before Ozzy Osbourne. I believe so. Actually, it might have been, I don't know, cuz it was probably 77, 78, so probably after. So why isn't John Cale lauded it as a badass? I think in certain circles he is, but... uh... He's
0: way more of a badass than Ozzy, isn't he? Imagine if, instead of the Osbournes, you had uh, the Kales, and it'd be just John Kale sat in his library for half an hour reading a book, (laughs) looking up occasionally and stroking his chin, scribbling down some notes and then reading some more. Join us next time where John reads another book.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't it sound like exactly the the perfect sort of thing that would be showing on Late Night Channel 4 in England? Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
3: (laughs) One Christmas was so much like the other In those years around the sea-town corner now Out of all sound except the distant speaking Of the voices I sometimes hear a moment before sleep That I can never remember whether it snowed For six days and six nights when I was twelve or whether it snowed for 12 days and 12 nights when I was six.
1: One of the other literary figures who you guys already mentioned was Dylan Thomas. I'll profess I had not read any Dylan Thomas before this. So, right, let's read his original, Child's Christmas in Wales. I wanted to get an impression just to sort of see what is it that John Cale is taking away from that for his own song. So the impression I get is Dylan Thomas's original old man talking to young man about Christmas's past not being very much of a poetry scholar no sort of poetry scholar at all I still find a lot of it where I'm scratching my head over but at least I'm able to take that much out of it with Christmas's past involving cats and snowballs and fire and sherry and walnuts and bottled beer and the like but listening to John Kale's story of 10 murdered oranges bled on board ship lends comedy to shame what the hell
3: (laughs)
2: Again, it's twentieth century Europe and he's using that as a stand-in for himself. He kind of steps away from being personal on this album. Like I said, you get so many characters, there's not mm. there's never a point where Kale really comes through, except for in how gentle he is with his melodies and how much you get from his voice and from his music that he doesn't give you a lot with lyrics. So especially Child's Christmas in Wales, you just get snippets. I was just thinking about how, again, we've been talking about how menacing Kale can be even when he has these complicated melodies. They're not complicated, they're just, they're a little um, off, aren't they? The melodies are, are so beautiful and so perfect, but they lack that directness and that hummability of, of a pop song, something you hear on the radio, something that would be evened out and smoothed out. They kind of take left turns sometimes that are beautiful left turns, but not quite as on as a pop radio hit, which I I think might have Damage the album a, a bit as far as becoming a hit. Same do you thing. think
0: that's him being intentionally almost that's kind of like a really watered down version of Dissonance, isn't it? He's just tweaking it slightly so it's not was that a, a conscious choice on his part do you think? Yeah, I think he had the foundation of so much talent, you know when you mm. know how to
2: do things, you yeah. can fuck them up a little bit, and you can yeah, fuck yeah. them up in interesting ways. When you don't know yeah. when you don't have a base for that, you can fuck things up, but you're, you're not, you don't really have the foundation, right?
0: You don't have the the musical knowledge and skill. You can
2: tell he knows pop music, but he also has all that classical music and orchestral music and church music and the drone music in his head. It's all there coming together. But saying things like, too late, but wait, the long-legged bait tripped uselessly around. Sebastopol
1: Adrianapolis. When you say it like that, it almost sounds like it's Alice Through the Looking Glass. It sounds like some nonsense verse from Lewis Carroll.
2: Sebastopol at Adrianapolis, which I believe is two cities combined that had bombardments, that had fortresses of some sort. So he's talking about war, but he's talking about war in this really uh, sideways manner. Like you said, it sounds like Lewis Carroll. Put together, it's so um, beautiful, and it's describing war describing missile silos and whatnot that's the duality of the album is just these beautiful beautiful songs and hidden in them is various moments of pain for an entire continent you know Mm -hmm heart-wrenching stuff that comes out so beautifully it renders it into a totally different emotion it's kind of hard to pin
1: down that song andalusia andalusia could be a woman but really it could be spain it could be when can i see you again that could be the pain of wartime once again you made a point before about kale also being well versed in church music and child's christmas in wales that organ belongs in some huge cathedral. To me that song and that organ is like the musical equivalent of a big hug. It just feels so warm and melodic and, and really Bernie when you said, right give this a listen that's the first thing I heard and inside 30 yeah. seconds probably that organ is the reason we're having this conversation now I just fell in love with that sound Yeah,
0: i mean, right out of the gate. I've done notes for each track and the first thing I wrote under Child's Christmas in Wales is organ
1: <laughs> <laughs> You are saying something thing i think doug about the songs not necessarily having instantly memorable catchy hooks or anything like that but that's not his modus operandi here each song is its whole package and you don't whistle charles christmas in wales right but it is as melodic as anything from a, a great songwriter of, of the period or indeed any period it does stay in your head you just don't necessarily whistle it but he's he's looking beyond creating something that's just a two and a half minute pop song. Nothing wrong with those, but that's not what he's doing here.
2: You know, such a perfect opener where it it hooks you right away and it's upbeat at the beginning. And then it lulls back down into the mood of the album. It almost like you know here's the ride here's the come up all right we're gonna go down and and stay down for a while and as useful as i think Macbeth is for like the dynamics of the album that's probably my least favorite song if i had to pick one and there are days where it's the last song on side one. there's days where after the i just
0: flip it over i don't think you would miss Macbeth if it was on the lp would you purely from a consistency point of view of the suite of songs as it were yeah. Is, yeah. As we were earlier is probably the one which sounds least like the
1: others. To me, Graham Green, <laughs> if I had to push one song aside, it'd be that. And I, I won't, because I, I love them all.
3: Yeah. You're having tea with
0: Graham Greene in the colored costume
3: of your choice, and you'll be thought in higher esteem. If you're seen in between.
1: I find you know Macbeth to be that wonderful mixture it's almost like maybe comically black because you've got that story of paranoia but it's this really up-tempo song and until you sort of actually read the lyrics or listen to what it is that he's singing about you think hang on wait what, what's he doing there really I huh? I just find it musically joyous and celebratory even if it doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily fit in the mood of the rest of it whereas you know Graham Greene is a good song but it seems to me to be that's the one that's the odd one out
0: it's really uh, difficult to to make cold reggae work, isn't it? And he kinda of gets away with it, doesn't he? Yeah,
2: I love I love Graham Green, but I get what you mean for sure. And Macbeth, I think when you take it Uh, lyrically and thematically, I think, like you're saying, it works really well. And I think it's a good little palate cleanser. It kind of stops you from feeling that sort of languid, you know, that languidness that kind of runs through it. But at the same time, for me, it's a little too blues stomp, a little too pub rock. In my uh, wheelhouse. In no way. (laughs) Not exactly my wheelhouse. But he makes it, I mean, John Cale, anything he lays his hands on up to a certain point, I'll say,
0: (laughs) really works. I don't know if that Caribbean album works very well, but... uh, (laughs) Well, the thing we should say about Paris 1919 as well is that it's a very short album. Most of the songs are between mm. two and three minutes.
1: 32 minutes, the whole album.
0: There you go. So yeah. nothing sticks around long enough for you to actually think, actually, this isn't quite working. If anything, it's quite the opposite. You want more of each song, don't you?
1: Mm, definitely.
0: You showed a lot of restraints and sort of forward thinking in doing that, I think, keeping the song short and keeping it a... Yeah, yeah. A short experience. During the period, you know, it was the prog rock was at its apex and people were putting out double LPs all the time, weren't they?
1: I'm glad you mentioned the word restraint because that fits very nicely into the next theme that I wanted to sort of talk about, and that is the orchestration used on the album. Now, it's, it's a funny thing because until I sort of sat down to make a few notes, I actually thought that there was a lot more orchestration on the album than there actually was, but there's only like, I think, on three songs. And I really thought, such as the mood that the album presents, you sort of think it's all over the album, but it's not. There's Paris 1919, Hanky Panky Know How, and The Endless Plane of Fortune. Paris 1919 is basically all just string quartet with a few horns. no band no rock band in that it's just this gorgeous beautiful baroque sound to it orchestration has a long history if you go back to buddy holly in rock music and you had other bands you know whatever the, the moody blues and well a songwriter who i first thought of when i listened to this album was bill fey and as much as you and i love bill fey bernie but mm-hmm. i think i love bill fey well uh, we'll have to invite you back To talk about his latest album The first Bill Fay album Sorry for the digression But there's too much Of an orchestral shame, I think yeah, To yeah. that The songs are great A lot more simpler If you hear his album of demos From the bottom of A grandfather clock A lot of those same oh, songs Appear on yeah. that And they're a lot simpler I think it's like him With a couple of different bands There's too much orchestra But on Paris 1919 It's always used simply And John Cale Being classically trained mm-hmm. And sort of being more interested In 20th century orchestral sounds He was going for that more minimal thing that's what interested him more there was no Wagnerian flights of fancy which yeah. for some reason rock stars seem to think oh well let's just go over the top I'm not going to mention anyone by name because I think that'll I don't want to piss off any members of our audience but uh, the ones that impressed Fleetwood me are working- <laughs>
2: <laughs> let's get a marching band in actually music <laughs> <laughs>
1: Why do bands like Metallica feel that they need to, to do something with an orchestra? Does it give them cred? But on this album the orchestration is used sparsely where it is. Paris nineteen nineteen is just a beautiful Baroque feel. Hanky Panky know how. It's that's as minimalist as it gets. notes with a small string section it's beautiful because that song and that arrangement reflects what the song appears to me to be about man's relationship with nature man tends to have to build great buildings and do all sorts of shit to appear great but nature does things quietly the music only a couple of chords there the composition does it minimally and the string section does it minimally beautiful and tasteful i think the one song where he does a little bit more but it it sort of works anyway is uh the endless plane of fortune but even there he starts off gentle and then when it gets into the middle eight that's when he brings the drama up and then he pulls it back light and shade Still not as over the top as some songwriters who are saying, Right, we're giving you a budget for an orchestra. Oh man, I want everything. I want everything. He's still using his classical background, his classical composition skills. And I'm presuming it's him that wrote all the arrangements because, well, he could. On the LP, on
2: the original LP, there's not even a list of who was on it. It just yeah, says everything producer, by John
0: Cale and producer,
2: yeah. yeah. Which is strange. Well,
0: we, we should talk about Little musicians piece. who are on there because it's, uh, I mean, we alluded to this earlier, but when I actually found out it was pretty much what well, was half of little feet wasn't it it was little mm, yeah. george was it the drummer from little feet yeah, well? uh, yeah richie
1: hayward the drummer
0: for all the years i had been listening to it and, and not realizing that that it was just a real shock to me but listening to it with that in mind you can tell some of the guitar licks definitely got a sort of there's some uh pedal steel and slide guitar yeah in the
1: back. yeah but it's almost like kale is saying hey i really like what you do now don't do it Right. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, give, I'll, give, I'll give you your moment on Macbeth, but otherwise. Yeah. Well,
0: even in a couple of the songs, there's definitely a slight. I mean, country is way too strong a term for it, but there's a slight sort of twang, you know, knowing that it is Lowell George playing them. You kind of think, okay, I can see that. That makes sense. <laughs>
1: for it which was melancholy and he's not playing in a rootsy americana sort of way he's saying right i hear this to bring some melancholy some sadness to the honest plane of fortune he's bringing sadness and melancholy on the pedal steel and the orchestra is bringing in the drama and and kale's voice just sounds as vulnerable as it gets yeah, song. Yeah. just absolutely beautiful
2: and like you said about man versus nature the music's very pastoral you know a lot of times yeah. and and Roll yeah. George brings that feel to it where mm. it, it's just a few little notes it feels not like country music but like the country mm-hmm. there's something that moves at a different pace a life that moves a little slower and there's feel uh, there of that bucolic sort of dreaminess That's you know
0: exactly yeah when I mentioned that earlier that I thought the LP was very sort of English or Welsh sounding that's exactly what I was getting at. It's that kind of Welsh countryside glimpsed through dappled leaves and so forth. And the
3: sea, when can I see you When it is snowing out again Farmer John wants you louder and softer Closer
2: and nearer then Andalusia. Lucia, how much we could talk about that song, but that mm-hmm. song is one of the most beautiful songs ever written. It never goes into sappiness. How many songs can you think where somebody says I love you and you don't feel a little bit like a little twinge? It's so heartbreaking the way he says it. It's it's like a goodbye. It's I love you, but doesn't matter. It's over. I think another songwriter
1: who can do that on the odd occasion where he chooses is Paul Westerberg, because I'm thinking of Sadly Beautiful has a, a similar sort of thing, I love mm-hmm. you, but farewell, I, I'm, I'm going to miss you. I, I wouldn't necessarily say that uh, Andalusia and Sadly Beautiful uh, necessarily similar, but they evoke a, uh, yeah. a similar sort of thing of, of, maybe not regret, but...
0: Resignation?
1: Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So. Which
2: is a big you know, even the album ends sort of with a resignation. His vocals are so low and they're so pained. You know, like I said, this never album never feels hokey. Antarctica starts here could really sound hokey mm-hmm. with the way it's done, but you can pull it off. And it and it's so perfect of an ending where you get that roller coaster ride of the upbeat of Child's Christmas and then the, the lol and then the Macbeth hit and then the little punch of Graham Green right in the right spot, and then you get mm-hmm. the final resignation. the 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 fade out into the end which starts here the next thing it starts here it's the it's the future
1: See, if the album had been anything less than wonderful or written by anyone less than the wonderful songwriter that John Cale is, then someone might have been tempted to say, well, well, this album starts off with a scream and ends off with a whimper. Uh, It's more like (laughs) it starts off with a yell and ends off with a whisper. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's the saddest ending. I mean, we already sort of spoke a little bit earlier on about how this song reflects someone you bed in sunset boulevard or whatever something else about better times and the wish to be back there you've gone and mentioned some of the other songs are about well where there's fear for the future we don't know where it's going but the character in this song isn't looking forward to the future the character in antarctica starts here This is Antarctica. What is it? It's the coldest place on Earth. My life is frozen out. I'm not going to be thawed out. This is not about looking forward to the future, even with fear. It's just my life has stopped. And it's the saddest thing. I mean, just sort of think of a great film that just ended like I don't know um, uh, sorcerer um, <laughs> what an ending there you sort of think oh maybe there's some hope for him and then pff, nope sorry uh, apologies to anyone who hasn't seen sorcerer with have <laughs> given away the ending but but
2: if anybody knows the devil's the last shot of that yeah <laughs> wandering, <laughs> off, wandering off into the abyss into right. the into the emptiness of of total destruction Oliver Reed at the end actually does do a, a little tap dance oh, so, God. oh well there you go just to bring your spirits up after after the credits end, stay for that part. He gets <laughs> a little soft shoe. Two, three, four.
3: I suppose I'm glad I'm on this train And it's long
2: It's one of those albums i can't get enough of it's lush even when it's minimal hopeful even when it's resigned it's it's heartbreaking even when it's beautiful it manages to have it looks back on the past in a way that we all look back on the past where we think of things that happened in our lives that we cringe at or embarrass us or we you know just want regret but we also look back on things in our past and we want to be inhabit that space again and i think Hale is doing that there of his difficult childhood of being lonely and isolated, but also finding comfort in his room and finding comfort in these songs and in music and and playing the organ and connecting that to Europe, the peace and tranquility that Europe you know, ran into where French soldiers marched into World War One in Napoleon uniforms, in the same uniforms as they, as they were in the Napoleonic Wars. And then they saw the guns exploding. And then they saw Belgium being destroyed and these massive tanks that people were assembling after dragging them a thousand miles and destroying 1400 year old buildings that were gone forever. And people marched into that war thinking we're going to stab each other with bayonets. And it was just the end of Europe it was the end of what Europe thought it was and then it had to reassemble its entire concept of itself and its perspective i think kale is doing that by revisiting his past and Europe's past and tying them together and does it so beautifully and the music matches it so perfectly the emotions he's trying to get across and the, the literature and the incredible deafness of prose that he has with saying so few words, it doesn't really always tie together but you get something out of it all the
0: same. Well Doug was saying that the, the, the fact that he was able to encompass so much the fact we're having a conversation when we're talking about large chunks of European history and world changing things, that he was able to encompass that in a short, beautiful, melancholy LP. It's just, tell me other artists who've, uh, other singers, songwriters, other musicians who've been able to kind of squeeze so much into so little in a way, you know? A, the fact that he would even try to do something like that, and B, the fact that he pulls it off so effortlessly in such a beautiful, listenable, absolutely tremendous LP. Words can't do it justice.
1: That makes the last hour and a half (laughs) a (laughs) waste
0: but yeah, you know we're trying our best but really like you said we're scratching the surface i think that this is singularly the best lp that anyone related to the velvets we'll leave the velvets out of the equation because that's a different story and there's you can make bold statements like that but you know, I, I would take this LP over the entirety of Lou Reed's solo work. You know, it's stunning. It really is. And it gets better and it gets better and it ages like a fine wine and it's tremendous.
1: Personally, I'm looking forward to diving even more into Kale's back catalogue. I loved that the fact that you introduced me to this album Burn I love the fact that I thought right well I've got to find out what he did just before and just after so I've been immersing myself in that
0: I should say yeah uh, as well that I've uh, this being the only KLlp LP I know really well the last couple of days I've ordered like three other LPs on eBay <laughs> so um, <laughs> I've got Fear I've got Oh wow Adam of Troy and I've got Vintage Violence all on the way
1: we didn't even speak about Vintage Violence my yeah, god Yeah. Amsterdam kills me
2: every Every well, time that okay. song, I've been in, in, I in got all to look
0: forward
1: to yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, fantastic. All right. Well, my huge thanks to you, gentlemen, for being a part of this. Indeed, Bernie, for you introducing this to me, and well, you're I'm welcome. glad. I'm glad that when I put up that post in the Love That Album page saying, "Oh, we're going to be covering this," that you chose to write. Doug, man, I listen to this album every day. Oh, sorry, every, <laughs> I listen to this album every week, and I thought, right, well then. You need to join us then. Yeah. Thanks for really, you know, going out there. And I encourage anyone in the Love That Album group to I put up a post, or you please put up posts about albums that you love. Really want to make this more inclusive. And, you know, here it was. Doug said that this is a, a, a big favourite of his. So I said, right, well, come and join us and talk about it. I appreciate it too. I really appreciate it.
0: I'm really glad you Doug, because I, I think you brought a lot to this that Morris and I wouldn't have touched on, you know.
1: Mm, the history so, stuff. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, thank
0: yeah. You. So, it, so it, yeah, this was great. This was really good. So so Before we
1: go, I'll just give a quick letting you audience know what's coming up on episode 138. And this is going to be another person who's a first-timer. He was recommended to me by a fellow called Mark Marchese, who's also in the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema group. He said, oh, you really ought to get in contact with this guy. He knows his music, and he certainly does. A fellow called Pat Thomas, who is a writer, a drummer. He is a huge Van Morrison obsessive. So we're going to be talking about... The uh, Van Morrison album, St. Dominic's Preview. Really looking forward to talking about that. And he's another guy who has a a way with a beautiful melody and with poetic imagery in his lyrics. So um, I've got to be on my toes because uh, I think uh, uh, Pat is something of a Van Morrison specialist. So that will be out In September
0: Let me give you my Van Morrison story
1: Oh you have a Van Morrison story Uh,
0: When I was about 14, 15 I had a part time job working in a It was kind of like a little cafe To uh, all extents and purposes Here in Bath in the UK And I was working the grill that day And who should come in but Van Morrison um, And he ordered sardines on toast So um, I made sardines on toast For Van Morrison (laughs) There you go
1: I was worried you're going to. It was going to be uh, sort of similar to your um, Robert Plant story. Oh no, no, no! <laughs> said, no, we're not open yet. Piss off! Because it'd yeah. it'd be quite fitting for someone else to tell Van Morrison. No, fuck off!
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> and I've got to say, uh, like everybody says about Jerry Lewis on um, Gilbert's podcast, <laughs> Van Morrison was very nice to me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I knew there had to be someone out there. Uh all right well once again huge thanks to both of you gentlemen for uh making this uh, a really wonderful conversation thank you so much thank you um, and for all your listeners out there please tune into any of the other wonderful podcasts in the pantheon network very proud to be part of it until next month look after each other be nice to each other as bernie likes to say at the nfc here wear a damn mask if you live in
2: america please fucking wear a mask and vote
1: can i say that it was it bill and ted who said be excellent to each other all the best cheers See ya. cheers
3: Her face has lost its touch The telltale signs of loneliness inside But I love her still And need her company still more Come down, come down Come down,
2: come down once
3: more, and I think the journey did her well. It's NFL Draft Season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.